<laughs> well, good evening, everyone. I'm Donnie Abbott. I, uh, my role here is children's pastor at Timberline. But every once in a while, Brent allows me to come in here and share with you, and I thoroughly enjoy doing that. Um, I do want just one announcement tonight, and that is February 8th and 9th. Uh, for those of you who are parents and or grandparents, we're having our fourth annual parenting conference, and that will actually take place right in here. And uh, you really don't want to miss it. All of us have challenges as parents. I have three boys, and they're all in very distinct uh, seasons of life. I have a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 19-year-old. And they're all a pain in the butt in their own special way. And I, I need this. So anyway, I hope that you can come. Um, Chris and Beth Bruno, uh, you may have heard them. They're both authors. They're local folks. And uh, they're speakers. They're really good. So anyway, I hope that you won't miss that. Well, uh, I love this title to our series, The Apostles' Creed, What All Christians Have in Common. And that phrase, what all Christians have in common, is an important one. Because in spite of the differences that exist amongst Christians around the world, creeds, specifically the Apostles' Creed, are those unifying statements of belief, professions of faith, that remind us of the important things that we as followers of Jesus have in common. There was a time when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he questioned his disciples, asking them, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, before I go on, we must understand the context in which Jesus asks this question. So first of all, by the time Jesus asked this question, he had already performed numerous healings, he had already fed the 5,000. His friends had been eyewitnesses to many uh, numerous miracles. And the second thing to help us in understanding the context in which Jesus asked this question is that Caesarea Philippi was mostly a Gentile region. And it was located about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It sat at the base of Mount Hermon, where it was one of the sources of the Jordan River. So this region is very green and lush with uh, trees and grass. And because of this, it became a center of pagan worship in the region. The Canaanite god of good fortune was worshipped there. Pan, the flute-playing half-man, half-goat, god of fright, where we get the word panic, was worshipped there. There was a grotto or a cave that had water flowing from it. And uh, the residents would throw sacrifices into this cave as a way of worshipping Pan. Herod the Great who was the ruler when Christ was born, he built a temple there to honor Caesar Augustus. So Jesus is asking this question against that backdrop. And he wants to know, what is the word on the street about him? What are people saying? So who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, 
Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Peter, in typical uh, boldness that Peter would often display, he answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. See, Peter offers to us what was probably the first creed or confession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that creeds are a way of condensing for us as followers of Jesus, condensing into one statement the main points of what we believe in. It's a way of taking our beliefs about God, about Jesus, about the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection, Jesus is coming again, taking all of those and putting them into one statement. Now, creeds, they usually came about in the early church as a way of combating false doctrine. The church has always battled false doctrine, and perhaps uh, no more so than today. But when the early church was just being formed, these crazy beliefs were starting to slowly creep into the church. And we see one example of this in Acts chapter 15. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees They stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now remember, the first converts to Christianity were Jews. Jews who had been circumcised. So these guys are all standing around. They're wondering, is is what we're hearing, is that true? Must a Gentile be circumcised? Must they obey the law of Moses? So this led to the church leaders to gather together and discuss this issue further. And after coming to a conclusion, guess who speaks up? Peter. Peter, he finally addresses them by stating, no, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. It is only by grace that any of us are saved. So that's one example. Another example, last week Pastor Brent mentioned Gnosticism, which was another heresy that was threatening the early church. And in short, it's the belief that spiritual things are good and material things are evil or the consequences of evil. Brent mentioned, you remember, he mentioned this guy, Marcion, who was the champion of Gnosticism. Arianism was another heretical movement in the early church. It's the position that Jesus, as the Son of God, was created by God. And, of course, this led to massive discussion amongst the church, 
to the point that, again, church leaders of the day, they gathered together to formulate a statement of belief as a way of ensuring that everyone is on the same page when it came to addressing these heretical beliefs. And that's where the Nicene Creed comes in. It was drafted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. I mention all of this because it is so important that we know our church history. It's important that we know it so that we don't forget where we came from. Because heretical teaching is still taking place and threatening the church today. So here we are with the Apostles' Creed. And when I was in seminary, uh, I was taking an early church father's class. And at the very beginning of every one of our classes, Dr. Robertson, he would ask us all to stand up and together recite the Apostles' Creed. So I want to invite us all to be good seminarians and let's stand up and let's recite the creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Don't you feel good now? Please have a seat. So tonight we come to the portion of the creed that states, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. There are three times in the creed where we affirm our belief in something. The first one is a belief in God the Father Almighty. The second one is belief in Jesus Christ. And the third one is belief in the Holy Spirit. So in your outline tonight, you can fill in the blank, and in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ. And this is big, isn't it? And I would argue that this is the beginning of the most contentious, the most controversial aspect of the Apostles' Creed. Famous theologian, Dr. Millard Erickson, he says that the deity of Christ sits at the pinnacle of controversy and belief concerning the Christian faith. Because here, we are introducing Jesus Christ. And I would say that today, kind of using broad terms, most people would agree with the first sentence of the creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty. Most people believe in God or in some sort of a higher power. Most people would say, yeah, yeah, okay. I believe in God, sure. I mean, why not, right? 
most people are comforted with the thought of there being a God who is viewed by many as some sort of a grandfatherly type figure who lives somewhere up there in heaven, a God who acts in many ways as this sort of benevolent deity who is there to help us when we need him and is someone whom we can cast blame on when things don't go our way, right? I mean, we even have a a line item in our insurance policies that says acts of God, right? And those acts of God are accidents or events that are not caused by man. I mean, you have to blame somebody, right? So you might as well blame it on God. (laughs) For the most part, I think that people view God as this sort of impersonal being who's somewhere up there, out there, and he doesn't pay much attention to what's going on down here. But here is the next line of the creed, and in Jesus Christ. This is where things change, in my opinion. Things start to get dicey from this part of the creed going forward. Things begin to get personal because we're about to confess that Jesus is God's son, that he is our Lord, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he was born to an unwedded teenage virgin, that he was crucified, that he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from from the grave. And those are all personal terms that we are all familiar with. Son, Lord, conception, born, crucified, dead. We get these things. We can relate to those. And it all starts right here with and in Jesus Christ, as it should. Because Christ is the central figure throughout all of history. The impact that Jesus Christ has had on our world is unparalleled and unprecedented. Historian Philip Schaff, in describing the overwhelming influence which Jesus had on subsequent history and culture of the world, he says this. He says, this Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Billions and billions of people, including many, if not all of us in this room tonight, have been freed from the yoke of sin and slavery because of this one person. But who exactly was he? For starters, 
And I know that we all know this. Jesus was an actual historical figure who lived and died just like we do. He was born to a virgin. His father was a carpenter. We know that he had brothers and sisters. His name, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew name, Yeshua. And the English name for Yeshua is Joshua. The other thing to know regarding his name is that Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ, Christ is a title that comes from Christos, which is a Greek word that means the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah. Christ and Messiah, when you read those, when you read those words, they mean the same thing. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And we see two examples of both of these terms in Scripture. The first is in John, where he tells us that these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the what? The Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Another example, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found who? The Messiah. Both of these examples were proclamations that the prophets of old had told of and had long waited to see. Even Jesus in a rare move of revealing his identity as Messiah, was once talking to a Samaritan woman. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, probably one of my favorite lines in all of scripture, he said, I who speak to you am he. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. And when you affirm that statement, you're stating your belief in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you all have done that. I did that one night in my bedroom when I was 14 years old. And I proclaimed Jesus as my Messiah, as my Savior, and when I did that, he completely changed my life. And now we come to his only son. Write that in your outline. His only son. Jesus is God's only son. And a fairly popular heresy in the second century was this thing called adoptionism. Adoptionists taught that Jesus was tested by God and after passing this test and upon his baptism, he was granted supernatural powers by God and adopted as his son. And as a reward for this great accomplishment and perfect character, Jesus was raised from the dead and was then adopted into the Godhead. 
This, of course, was completely contrary to what the scriptures say. So again, you see the importance of the creeds as they help everyone get back on track to the fact that Jesus is God's only begotten son. Jesus wasn't adopted by any means. Now, I know that there's a lot of layers to this, right? Because immediately, when you state that Jesus is God's only son, you are emphatically stating that there are what? No other sons, right? And what you're talking about here is exclusivity. God's only son. And in our pluralistic society, man, that's not very popular, is it? In our postmodern society, it's one where all religions and beliefs are of equal value. Everyone's equal. So as soon as you say that Jesus is God's son, or you suggest that there's only one way to God, man, you are touching on a hot-button topic, aren't you? Because, after all, how does anyone know? How can anyone definitively say that Jesus is God's only son? Well, Jesus himself does. He tells us. John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and what? Only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send who? His son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God, God's one and what? Only son. The words of Jesus himself. And that kind of claim flies in the face of other religions' views on Jesus. See, our Jewish friends, they simply don't believe that God could have a son, let alone that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Mormons, Mormons believe that Jesus and Lucifer were spirit brothers. So according to them, God had two sons, and in fact, all of us are sons and daughters of God, according to Mormonism. And in Islam, Jesus is a much revered and great prophet, but he's not to be worshipped as the son of God. Famous theologian J.I. Packer, he's one of my favorite. He says this, he says that when the creed calls God the maker of heaven and earth, it parts company with Hinduism and by extension with all the Eastern religions when it declares that Jesus is the Christ, God's only son, and our Lord, it parts company with Islam and Judaism. This claim for Jesus makes Christianity utterly unique. And this debate about Jesus, it's not new, right? This debate has been going on 
for 2,000 years. It was happening while Jesus was alive. The Apostle Paul, in his travels to Athens, Greece, he visited a place called the Oropagus. And the Oropagus at the time was a meeting place where the intellectual elite would gather and they would exchange ideas and talk about uh, different, different subjects like philosophy and science and medicine and religion. And here, Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. See, Athens at the time was the center point of idol worship in the world. They had temples dedicated to Zeus, Apollos, Aphrodite, and countless others. And just so they could cover their tracks, they created this altar <laughs> to an unknown God, right? We don't want to forget that guy. So it's in this, again, pluralistic environment that Paul proclaimed who this unknown God was and is. He is the person of Jesus Christ, God's only son, and not just that, but he is our Lord. Write that in your outline, our Lord. I've always wondered, what does Lord mean, right? I mean, it's such an old, kind of an old term, isn't it? We don't use Lord today. Well, the dictionary defines Lord as someone or something having power, authority, or influence, a master or ruler. So we're probably more familiar with this term being used in British aristocratic society. If any of you, if any of you have ever read uh, or watched uh, Pride and Prejudice, anybody? Sense and Sensibility, yeah, any more? Uh, any, any men watch those? <laughs> you have. Your wife loves you very much. I'm telling you. You must love your wife. So along with you a year ago, my wife and I were uh, celebrating our anniversary. And she was like, honey, I just want you to watch Pride and Prejudice with me. And for years, I have put that off. But I'll let you know, last year, like you, I sat down and watched it. And I actually enjoyed it. But anyway, if you're familiar with Jane Austen's work, then you have heard that term, Lord. And in that time, uh, it was a common term used by uh, landowners. These landowners would lease property to people. So think of a landlord. Scripturally speaking... When you're reading your Bible and you see the word Lord in capital letters, that's in reference to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and the position of Yahweh to his people. It was a simple, straightforward, and common way of saying that our God 
is our master. In the New Testament, the term Lord is the most frequently used title for Jesus Christ. And it's, it's an acknowledgement of Jesus' position as master, as master of our lives. But we don't typically like the idea of anyone being master over us, do we? British poet William Ernest Henley, he said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that kind of thinking, that resonates with us, right? In our independent spirit here in the West, like Adam and Eve, we tend to think that our way is the best way, right? We tend to take, at times, the word of God as a collection of suggestions, right? But oftentimes, as we build our own little kingdoms in our world, of which we are the master of, we get ourselves in trouble, don't we? I know that I have. And I think that to a certain degree, we all struggle with allowing Jesus to be the master or Lord over our lives. I know that I do. And the reason is that we have a desire to follow the ways of God, but we also feel this compelling tug from the things of our world, don't we? An example of this, in the late 70s, singer and songwriter Bob Dylan, he had a profound spiritual experience in a hotel room in Tucson, Arizona. An experience that led him to embrace Christianity. And as he recounts that moment, he says, Jesus did appear to me as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There was a presence in the room that couldn't have been anybody but Jesus. Jesus put his hand on me. It was a physical thing. I felt it. I felt it all over me. I felt my whole body tremble. The glory of the Lord knocked me down and picked me back up. I think we would all agree that's quite a conversion experience, isn't it? The first album that he recorded after coming to faith, was one titled Slow Train Coming. Any of you remember this? Yeah. And there was a popular song on that album that was called Gotta Serve Somebody. Now, I'm not a Bob Dylan fan by any means, but uh, I do understand his place of importance in American pop culture. I think the lyrics to this song are particularly profound. He says this, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. He's making the obvious point that we all serve somebody or something. All of us has a master whom we serve. So the question for us tonight is do we make Jesus Lord of our lives? 
This is the challenge for all of us, isn't it? See, this is what sanctification looks like. Sanctification is this big churchy word that simply means becoming more Christ-like. It's the giving up of those areas of our lives where we have been master, where we have been in control, and instead, giving Jesus control, making him master, making him Lord. So with us still at the front end of 2019, what can you and I do to make Jesus Lord of our life? To go along with our pray, give, go theme here at Timberline for 2019, how can you pray more or differently if Jesus is Lord of your life? How can you give more or differently if Jesus is Lord of your life? And giving isn't just about money. Giving's about giving your time and using the natural gifts and abilities that God has given you to be in service to others. What would that look like if Jesus was Lord of your life? How can you go more or differently if Jesus is Lord in your life. All of us as followers of Jesus are uh, we're supposed to be missional in our living. So what would that look like? What would that look like for you? Would you be more open to the people that live on your street? Perhaps this is the year where you go on your first mission trip. And man, I, I tell everybody, you gotta go on a mission trip at some point in your life before you die. Because when you do, it'll completely change your life. How can Jesus be Lord over your kids? What would that look like? What about your marriage? How can Jesus be Lord in your marriage? Perhaps this is the year where you don't settle anymore in your marriage. Perhaps this is the year where you go and seek out counseling to make your marriage better. This is the year that things are going to get better. This is the year that things are going to change. This is the year that you're going to put Jesus in his rightful place as Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord.